0: All right. We're on. No, we're not really on. Sure, we are.
1: We're always on. No. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Two can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one.
0: Because one is the loneliest number, it's been proven, it's proven here in How Not To Be Wrong, by Jordan do. Ellenberg, who's joining us today, that's him drinking coffee, one I'm,
1: drinking. One I'm sorry, uh,
0: Power of Mathematical know. Thinking, which I'm really itching the hand.
1: or I'm itching something
0: we'll find out if one is the loneliest number. So, anything you know, you know a lot about math, though. Right? I know be nothing very about math. How oh, not to no, be wrong? The power will, of mathematical this, thinking. Jordan th- Ellenberg, our guest. This will be totally new to me today. But you said you were in honors math in in college. Yeah,
1: they put me in there as a freshman. Yeah, it was horrible. Why? Because it was right after lunchtime. I fell asleep and. And then I what about I, the, I had content. To drop the it was after lunchtime I didn't under, was It was calculus. I didn't understand anything of it, and so I had to drop the class and that was that. Didn't you take And I never calculus, took another math course. Dorchester my life. High? Sure, I had but, but did Dorchester we didn't have, have another calcul offering? when I was in high school we didn't have calculus. It hadn't been invented
0: yet. Okay. But by the time you got to college it was invented?
1: Suddenly there it was. <laughs> yes. And I didn't like it, and I uh, still Well, how did you get mystery. into
0: honors, anything, then, based on that record, that miserable I, math it, record at Dorchester it, it, High School? No, I had a... In Dorchester. I had straight A's in math in high school. Yeah, but what what, what kind of math? You know, algebra, geometry, and... Yeah? Long division. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's honors. <laughs> For Dorchester, maybe. All right. So they didn't know. All right, so were you're of no people. help. I only got no. as far as ninth grade algebra. Now how all right, first of all, how do you account for your I mean, this is this is something that's born or something. You 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 can train someone and they can be mathematicians, but there's also an individual who think, who maybe thinks mathematically.
2: Is that possible? Well, what I think is that there are – and just you know, being around mathematicians and working with mathematicians for many years, I think there's like a ton of different life stories that mathematicians have. And one yeah. of them is people who start really early. That was my story. But I think a lot of people think that's – everybody's story and it's definitely not there's people who fall in love with math when they're a little kid like me and there's people who discover it much later in life like when they're in college they're studying something else and they find that the only courses they really like um, are the math classes not like you like kind of anti Lyle, kind of not like not like your story the exact opposite and
0: you do you talk about the, the cult of genius as far as mathematics go and how that sort of inhibits people from really developing. yeah i think
2: that i think that's very true that if we have some idea that math is only for some very small pre-selected group of people. I think a lot of people, uh, you know, give up before they even start. When... Yeah, well, what happens a lot, you know, what happens a lot uh, for students in college is that often, you know, a lot of students have, uh, I mean, I'm again, much like Lyle's story, like have done very well in high school and like found those courses easy. Well, college courses are a lot harder. Um, and I think a lot of students encountering that course for the first time feel, oh, this must not be for me. Like I must, it's not supposed to be as hard, there's a problem with me. And you, you have these very interesting conversations where you say like, no, it is supposed to be hard. Like I'm the professor, I decide whether it's hard and I on purpose made it hard that you're finding it hard. If you, if you didn't, then I would be doing my job badly. But it's still, it's, I think it's hard for kids to get over the hump and I think um Difficulty is good, right?
0: And if they're not going into a ma- the math per se, they're not going to be a higher mathematician. Is it still good for them to have to understand some of these higher math
2: things? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we yeah. you know we probably have enough mathematicians. Is that okay for me to say? Maybe that's bad. <laughs> I mean, <there's>, I mean, <laughs> we make a pretty good number. I'll of Now that you're in, I could see what you're saying. Um, exactly, exactly. I'm I've got my hand down on the ladder <laughs> pushing. No. Um, but I think you know more important is that you know your doctor, your lawyer. Your senator knows a little bit of math, like worth it. Well, our senator does. You know, right. Tammy Baldwin was a math major. Did you Ron know Johnson does he know? That is an interesting question. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I he does or not. Yeah, but yeah. Tam, but Baldwin was a math major. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, a math major at Smith. In yeah. fact, there was once a time here in um, here in Madison where um, back when she was in the House of Representatives, she and her opponent were both math majors. Uh, Peter Theron was the fellow's name who ran mm-hmm. against her. He had a math degree, too. Yeah. It was a math on math. I don't think that was widely publicized as part of it. it didn't come up in the debates or anything like that, but we oh, knew. Man, a math We knew.
0: How not to be wrong, the power of mathematical thinking.
2: I, I, I'm, I'm going through it. Yeah, how far did you slow get slow
0: going. Well, I got <laughs> We can put this off. Look, if you it, need I'll more time. show you what I marked up all the way to the end here.
2: Oh, I see. Okay, the markings are there. I see it. Mar- yeah,
0: but, and they're in the book. And I actually started a notebook here. Uh, I started with false linearity and Swedishness
2: yeah that's yeah should we talk about should we switch to swedish right now is that what you're no i'm just
0: uh, wondering the connection between false first of all what is false linear and and secondly what is swedishness
2: well i was struck by something i read on the internet happens all the time right you sort of um it's good to write books because then every time you're annoyed about something on the internet you can instead of just sort of sitting and fussing about it you can use that productively to be like
0: you can prove it wrong
2: yeah, exactly. You can sort of write something about it. So, so somebody wrote an editorial that said, why is the U.S. trying to become more like Sweden when Sweden is trying to become less like Sweden? And what yeah. they were talking about, so Swedishness here means kind of some general level of, like, you know, taxation, contribution to the welfare state, contribution to things like, you know, higher education and uh, and food stamps, welfare programs, like general... Progressive uh, things in general. Things, you know, yes. like, even just things, like things the government does. It doesn't matter yeah. progressive, not progressive. Yeah. So... Um, So the argument that was being made was that Sweden is kind of, at least this time this is being written, is kind of dialing back a little bit on these programs. They say, well, why? If Sweden's sort of turning this lever down, um, I guess you don't turn a lever, whatever it is that you do. If Sweden is moving down on this scale, why would the US be moving up? If it's right to move down, why would you move up? And this is an example of what I call false linearity, Mm -hmm. um, where, um, you know, a linear function sort of graphed by a straight line, it's either sloping up or sloping down. There's no, in a linear model, there's okay. no allowance for a curve that goes up and then is at its maximum in the middle and then goes back down. Oh, okay. Like so, if you're trying to figure out, you know, how how high should the level of taxation in my country be? It's either better to have more taxes or it's better to have less taxes. And you know, you say, well, well, there's a contradiction. If Sweden thinks it's better to have less, how can we think it's better to have more? We're in disagreement. Okay. Of course, in real life, curves are curves, right? They're not usually lines, and so there may be some optimal level of Swedishness, which is maybe a little more Swedish than the United States and perhaps a little less Swedish than Sweden. Um, but I think people naturally um, gravitate uh, towards these kinds of linear models, which work a lot, so work like, pretty well for a lot of things. Yeah, they're like either or things. Yeah, either or, or a straight line. Like I think yeah. I remember there was something, now I won't remember the exact numbers from the book, but sort of somebody was observing, well, you know, the rate of obesity in America is going up, let's say it was about 1% every year. And now it's, let's say, 60%. So they would say like, oh, that means in 40 more years, like everyone in America will be obese. That was the conclusion. Well, that's not such a great <laughs> conclusion, right? right? Because it's not gonna sort of continue the exact same increase every year indeed.
0: Yeah, and then and then you get to
2: the, the, the Laffer curve what yeah. is a, a
0: Laffer curve? It's sort of like a bell-shaped curve.
2: Well, it's a very famous curve that was drawn on a napkin. And it was it sort of on the one hand, it's a staple of kind of fringy right-wing economics. But I kind of uh, stick up for it in the book because I th- what it does recognize... Are you fringing
0: right-wing at heart?
2: Only in this respect. <laughs> only in this one respect. Everybody needs a... The Laffer like, curve thing. The yeah. Laffer curve. I mean, because I think um, what it captures is something that's actually true, that there is such a thing as too little taxation and there's such a thing as too much too much taxation um so you can draw a curve where the optimal point is somewhere in between some kind of point of moderation in between now i think where arthur laffer who developed the laffer curve and most economists would differ is you know laffer thought we were on the side of the curve where more taxation would actually decrease government revenue so that was his theory that like if you right. tax we were at the point where People were taxed so much that if you taxed even more, people would just quit their jobs, walk away, like yeah. not work. And not that's sort of like this,
0: this giveaway to the wealthy is sort of based on the laugher. Yeah, I think and this is still you, I think.
2: And there was a stop collecting you know,
0: taxes from the wealthy and well, the economy. will, do And that.
2: magically we'll draw in more taxes. And yeah. I think most people think, no, that's not where we are on the curve. We're in the it's part laugher. of that it where it's laughable. It's laughable. So, yeah. um, but that doesn't mean that the curve doesn't exist. I mean, I think everybody, exists, everybody agrees that there would be some level of taxation, almost surely one much more Swedish than the one we actually have here in the United States, um, where that effect really would uh, come into play.
0: Okay. But that's, and no, I can sort of get that now, but evanescent increments and unnecessary perplexities. I mean, I know I have unnecessary perplexities, but I don't know if I have evanescent increments.
2: Well, there, you know, I was, I was I was quoting, who am I quoting there? Bishop Berkeley, is that right? I've forgotten who this quote comes from. But it, this was going back to the development of calculus, Lyle's favorite subject. Yeah. Right? Um, and there was a huge argument. You know, one thing I like to do when I write about math, because we, um, we present it to our students in this very finished, neat, cut into nice squares form. And, of course, any piece of mathematics as it's developed is... Um, is much messier. You can kind of see the seams and you can see the controversies. And in many ways, I think that actually makes it more learnable. Because I think if you sort of show up at a calculus class, it's not so clear, like, where does this come from? Why are we doing it? Is it a purely formal operation? But calculus, you know, was something that was invented to do a certain thing. And at the time, it was quite controversial. So this statement about uh, evanescent increments, this was... um, You know, Newton's great insight when he creates calculus is, well, we can talk about, let's say, the speed of a moving body in space. Um, Well, what is that? I mean, you could say, like, well, how far does it go in an hour? That can tell you its speed. Well, but I don't want to know its speed over the whole hour. I want to know its speed right now. Okay, so let's sort of see how far it travels in a minute. You know, it travels 20 meters in a minute. We can say it's going 20 meters per minute. Well, maybe I really want to know. Not how far it's going to go over that whole minute, but really how fast it's going right now. So maybe I just like track it for a second, and I say, okay, okay, it goes like this many meters in a second. Um, and Newton's insight was that you could shrink that time interval, shrink it, shrink it, shrink it, all the way to be essentially infinitesimal, essentially zero. Hmm. Um, and that was on the at the same time kind of brilliant, but like also kind of crazy, and not everybody bought it. You know, when we say 20 meters per minute, we're dividing by a minute. When we say however many distance per second, we're dividing by a second. Okay, what are you not allowed to do ever? Divide by zero, right? Because you get zero. No. 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 Lyle, you want to come in on this? No, do, yes, good. Infinite. I mean, I it's, it's it not supposed, to, other, it's not I supposed can... to make sense to divide by zero. And Newton's great insight was to kind of figure out a way to make sense of that. Exactly so he could understand this problem of like, I want to describe what the speed of this moving body is. Like right now, instantaneously so, like, at if, this moment. If the object not had
0: inherent speed,
2: if you just caught it, if you froze it, you could see what its speed was.
0: Basically.
2: Right, but already you see the problem, right? Already you see the problem because then an objector to Newton, and there were many, yeah. would say, wait, if you froze it, it has no speed. <laughs> right? has no, yeah, <laughs> they they would say, they just, would just, say stop you right there, you froze it, it has no speed right. anymore. So this is exactly the controversy, and yeah. this is what people were so this notion of evanescent, you know, the increment, right, that's like how uh, okay. how far you go, and people would argue about that incessantly, and I think kind of a, you know, teach the controversy, as they always say. I mean, I yeah. think going back to that kind of makes it vivid why you would do such a weird thing as create calculus.
0: Yeah, is that what Newton did then? He created calculus
2: to. Try and yes. prove Newton and Leibniz. We have to give Leibniz. Isn't that value. an overreaction? Creating calculus to just having a problem with speed. <laughs> you know, the apple <laughs> drops in your head. You get mad. You got to react <laughs> somehow. You got to do something.
0: How brilliant was that?
2: I think everything, because everything in math is developed to solve a real problem. I think everything has um, everything has a history. I don't think people really formulated it before Newton. I was gonna say nobody really formulated it properly before newton but you could say that newton himself didn't even really formulate it properly in modern terms i mean after newton there was like hundreds of years of people trying to like what was it like how does this like really work can we make this more formal can we make it more rigorous Can we make it more precise but um but this notion of um this notion of a limit this notion of you know newton saying well this is how far you went in an hour this is how far you went in a minute this is how far you and a second shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. That idea is actually like pretty old. This is like you can go back uh, to the ancient Greeks. You can go back to a guy called Eudoxus who is a precursor to Euclid and you can see him saying, um, you know, thinking about the diameter of a circle. All of you on the podcast, I'm making a big uh, circle with my finger Um, and saying, well, a circle is like, you take a square, that's kind of like a circle. You take an octagon, that's like yet more like a circle. You take a figure with 16 sides, that's more like a circle. Right. Well, what if you can just go and go and go? And just as you can't really, you can see why there's a controversy about how fast are you going at this moment in zero time. There's also a controversy about how can you draw a figure with infinitely many sides. But people were sort of wrestling oh, yeah, with this yeah, concept yeah, yeah, of the yeah. limit, saying, I just want to like let this process go off to infinity and yeah. see what happens. And often, and that's a perfect example, you get the right answer, even though it's maybe as like, hard using the language that the greeks had to justify yeah. so
0: what is the, the right answer to that circle problem
2: well that was how people started to understand that this kind of constant pi that we all study um it described both the perimeter of a circle how far it, how long it took to go all the way around it and the area of the circle like how much right. stuff there was and in both of those if you want to compute those both of those have a pi in them and it was understood a long time ago that somehow it was the same pi and it was understood precisely in this way by thinking of a limit of polygons with more and more sides.
0: Is that where more pie than plate comes in? <laughs> or is that a different, actually, different, different
2: it, pie? <laughs> I wrote a chapter called more pie than plate, and that was actually not about that pie. That was oh, about pie like charts. Pie charts. Yeah.
0: What's wrong with pie that charts? That chapter
2: was also about some, yeah. something that annoyed me that I read on the internet. Maybe this is just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. maybe that's what I should have called the book. Misuse, right? Pie people charts. People would have bought it if I called it things that annoyed me on the internet. Or that, no, that's, well, that's, that's everybody's book.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. I, I can relate totally to that approach. Anyway, uh, Pi, what's wrong with pie charts? They're used all the time now to yeah,
1: they're used all any, the time. any program. And they're
2: used people. when there's like um, a certain amount of stuff that you can divide into segments, that you can divide into how much of it is from this and how much of it is from that. And I was annoyed because I read on the internet, this was years ago. I don't know if you remember, but there was a guy called Scott Walker who was a politician here in the know, state of Wisconsin. I don't know if it was a, I remember the name. I can't remember what it was. one of those anonymous names. Maybe it doesn't was, ring was a bell. It? Anyway, there was this guy. Yeah. And he very proudly proclaimed that now, I'm not sure I'll remember these numbers exactly right, but it was something like that he said, like that, you know, 45% of all jobs created in the whole United States mm-hmm. were created here in Wisconsin. It's a very impressive figure, 45%
0: right? of all jobs in the U.S. are big, in Wisconsin. Big created chunk of the pie, right? In, yeah. Very yeah. impressive.
2: Um, when you looked into it a little surprising. more, you could, you could discover some other surprising facts, which is that yeah. also 60% of all jobs created in the United States were created in Minnesota. That's pretty great. Did Walker say that, too? Was he no, just, he didn't mention that. Yeah. That's, and then if you think about that a little more, you're like, okay, so 45% here in Wisconsin, yeah. 60% in Minnesota. That's
0: it's already up to 105%. That's already
2: up to 105%. Yeah. So the point is that what actually had happened was that um, there were a lot of states where jobs were growing and a lot of states where jobs were shrinking. So the total net jobs added in the United States in that particular month was very small. It was some small number, like maybe in the tens of thousands oh, I see. of jobs. Um, and so. see. Um, the problem with pie charts can be if some of the slices of pie are negative in size, that's very hard to depict on your chart. So in this case, I was, I was, uh, you know, I wanted to make this point. A that sliver.
0: So My mother would call it a sliver. Um, <laughs> you go into Heinemann's,
2: they give you a sliver of pie. A, sl- a sliver. So, so yeah, um, so yeah it's, a, it's a perfect example of, because I think often, you know, when people say, um Okay, I want to know whether this statement is numerically correct. When do you call in a mathematician? You want to know, is this number is this numerically the correct answer? Now, So you could say that what Scott Walker said was, in some purely numerical sense, correct. There was a number of net jobs created in the United States in that month, and there was a number of net jobs uh, created in Wisconsin, and one of those numbers was 45% as big as the other. So you could say that what Scott Walker said was, in some very technical sense, true, and yet it's evidently designed to mislead. And that's one of the things I wanted to write about in the book, that math is not just about is this a numerically correct answer to a question? It's, was that even the right question to ask in the first place? And that's part of math too. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. And this is exactly what I mean, by the way, when I say we should embrace the difficulty of math. I think what we often do, we take a little kid and we're like, we start them in algebra, which is like, in K-12 education, it's a huge place where people like fall off the train of math. and are like, okay, I understood it up to then. Then it hit algebra. Suddenly, instead of a number, there was a letter. I was confused. And we have students, and often I think teachers try to be encouraging by saying, well, actually, this is simple. Like, actually, this is easy. Like, no, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. That's why there were thousands of years of mathematics before this kind of idea of denoting a variable by a letter, mm. which is incredibly useful. But we had lots and lots of math. Before that was introduced and developed and came into use and yeah. it took like, you know, these very uh extremely competent, extremely practiced practitioners in order to develop that thing. So we shouldn't tell kids it's easy, we should tell them it's okay. hard. Because if you tell a kids something it's easy yeah. and then they're confused, they're gonna be like, Well, the problem is me. Yeah. Must be because I can't do this, must be because I have something in capacity that keeps yeah. me from doing it. Well, the kids will tell you it's hard. Right, but the teachers should tell the kids it's hard. That's what I think. <laughs>
0: it's everybody, hard. For, you know, everybody I, should be honest with each other. Everything's hard.
2: hard. Fractions are
0: hard. It's hard for the teachers. Don't I you think, think fractions
2: like are hard? Yes, because up to that hard. moment, a number you're telling a kid number a number, okay a number is counting. That's what yeah. a number is. A yeah. number is how you count. Yeah. You know, a fraction is just a different kind of thing. Yeah. Now, we're used to it. As adults, we're like, oh, yeah, a fraction is a kind of number. But yes. that was a subject of controversy, too, whether yeah. a fraction is a number. The ancient Greeks wouldn't have said a fraction was a number.
0: No, they wouldn't? No. Did so they have they, fractions?
2: They did, but they would have thought of it as like a ratio between two magnitudes. They would have said like, oh, these two okay. line segments are in the ratio three to this, five. This That's this the way they would have that. expressed. This yes. That. That's the way they would have expressed the concept of
0: uh, inference or torturing the data until it confesses. I feel this is very useful to know about
2: today. It is because. You know, so much of what we do, how we decide on policies, how we just think about the world is governed by scientific studies that use statistical methods. And um, and they're all wrong. right? Most of them are wrong. Well,
0: most things I think at some point.
2: It's controversial. There's a a famous article that says, like, most medical studies are wrong. and in some sense, here's the basic problem. The basic problem is that the statistical tools that we have are able to tell you, well, we did this study, we tested this medication on a bunch of people, um, and it looked like it worked pretty well. What does it mean that it looked like it worked pretty well? <laughs> it means that um, if the medicine didn't work at all, we would be surprised to get such good results. It would be unlikely if the medicine were just doing nothing, that we would get such good results. Maybe there would be only a 1 in 20 chance. That's a very common benchmark. To say that if the medicine didn't work, if it were just like sugar pills we are giving people, only 1 in 20 chance mm-hmm. uh, we would get such good results. Well, the problem is this. If you do 20 studies, mm-hmm. or you do 200 studies, mm-hmm. or you do 2,000 studies, those chance results are going to happen a lot. There's going to be a lot of drugs that aren't doing anything, but just by chance they happen to look like they're doing well. And so this is sort of less of a problem in the old, in the old days when science was just a much smaller operation and we weren't doing thousands upon thousands of studies um all the time kind of cutting the data every which way but nowadays and i think in some sense the right way to think of this is that every new study it's a piece of evidence that might push us in one direction or another um towards believing something or not believing it but i think i mean i think you know the days when you could sort of safely think of okay i read a study and like that's it the question is answered um That's probably not the right way to think of it. And I think, like, indeed, I think if you really, like, delve into the statistics, like, nobody's really saying that's what it means. Nobody's really saying, like, the question is settled and there's no point in doing future research. in And it's just something that kind of pushes you one direction or another.
0: Well, I mean, but therefore, can mathematics save us from some of these misconceptions, which could be fatal? Yeah, it can
2: save us from being too sure about things. I mean, that's the thing. I think sometimes people say, like, oh, what's math for? It's for, like, black or white, yes or no answers, and being sure. No, like, mathematics is the best tool we have for... Quantifying our uncertainty and understanding it yeah. so i mean people you know so right so people get very exercised they're like well i read a study that said meat is good for you but then i read another study that says meat is bad for you like what's going on there's like yeah. a contradiction no there's no contradiction who did like, the study i would ask for that too but like <laughs> but each one of those studies and moves the needle one direction or another but there's no contradiction in life like that is as it should be if you do a lot of studies some of them are going to one say one thing and some of yeah. them are going to say the other and you look at how the balance of the evidence
0: all right, so does any of this have to do with the uh, the uh, Baltimore stockbroker?
2: Yeah, it's actually quite related. Yeah. I don't know if you, I, this, is a, this is sort of a famous story, and um, it's sort of a parable, if you like, where um, it's a story where you go to your mailbox one morning and you get from a stranger in Baltimore, you get a stock tip. It's a weird thing to get, but you sort of like yeah. look at it. Maybe you ignore it. But you happen to notice that like, Actually, the tip that was in this newsletter Mm -hmm. uh, actually came true the next week. And the day after that, you get another tip in the mail. And you check, and that one comes true. He's picking stocks. He's picking stocks, telling you this one's going to go up or this one's going to go down. And it does. It does, week after week. um, You get 10 of these in a row from this anonymous person in Baltimore. And every time, (laughs) the guy is right. And then what you know, what do you start to think? You start to think this guy's a genius. He knows something. He knows what's gonna happen in the stock market. Okay, what's the true story? The true story is that you're not the only person who got a tip in the mail. The true story is that the Baltimore stockbroker that first week sends out a thousand flyers. And half of them say the stock's gonna go up, and half of them say <laughs> the stock is gonna go down. Now the people who got the wrong tip, they never hear from him again. They're done. The next week, right, he sends out just those 500, to the 500 people he got yeah. right the first time. Yeah. 250 of them say this other stock is going to go up. 250 yeah. of them say the other stock is going to go down.
0: So after 10 stocks... He's down any, to just you. It's just you. Just, just you. just <laughs> you. You're the lucky one or the unlucky one.
2: But it speaks to a very deep principle, which is that you see what you observe, but you don't see what you didn't observe. Does that sound like Zen or something? Yeah, the, you don't definitely. see the things that didn't happen to cross your eye. And I think that the whole issue with scientific studies is like this, that there's what's called the file drawer problem, where you see a very impressive study that indicates that a certain intervention is useful. But there might have been 100 studies of that intervention, and in 99 of them had failed, and so they were never published. You don't see those. Yeah. You only see the one that comes into your mailbox. Right, right. It can give you a misleading idea about what to Is what to that
0: believe? similar to this uh, incubated mutual fund process? when they start a new mutual fund or release it, uh, some of them are actually incubated before and the bad ones picked out and dropped out beforehand. Is that similar?
2: Exactly, so you don't see them all. You, may, you might see somebody says, hey, I have this mutual fund. Look, it's beaten the market all five of the last five years and now you can invest in it. But you may not know that that same investor was developing hundreds of mutual funds, most of which failed. And the fact that one of them happened to do well five years in a row, Yeah. Could just be chance doesn't mean that the person knows anything.
0: Yeah. And math sort of explains how they're wrong or something. But can math save us from making some of these huge mistakes? I mean,
2: I mean, let me put it this way. I don't think math wants you to be cynical. I think math wants you to be skeptical, which is a very different thing. Right. It means that um, I think math is there to kind of counsel you to be somewhat cautious. And uh, and when you believe something, to kind of try to hold open in your mind yeah. the idea of the opposite. <laughs> and this
0: is all like improbable things happen a lot. A lot of these mistakes come from the fact that improbable things happen a lot.
2: Right, and that's exactly the same principle that like we sort of are struck by some like amazing coincidence. But if you think about just how many people there are and how many things happen to them every day, it's actually no surprise that there's a lot of weird coincidences. I mean, there's so many people something might happen to and eventually
0: a man is struck by an asteroid or whatever
2: yeah eventually a man is struck by an asteroid and another man wins the lottery four times in yeah. four years or so like whatever like you know it's gonna it's gonna happen there's like a lot of people it's hard to grasp just how yeah. many people there are doing how many different things i, I get that but uh,
0: a dead fish uh, being shown a series of photos of people have a has a strong ability to correctly assess their emotional state It's a dead fish. Dead fish. A salmon. Dead salmon. A salmon.
2: Yeah. You got to, you know, really lay out the experimental protocol.
0: MRI. So they're looking at uh, responses, and they show this dead salmon series of
2: photos. You put the dead salmon in the MRI. You don't want to be the person in the MRI right after that, by the way. (laughs) You want to go first if you have the option. (laughs) The emotional tone. They showed photographs to the dead salmon. Yeah and measured their sort of re- you know what was going on inside the salmon's brain, yes. the dead salmon's brain. Is um,
0: mathematically possibly something wrong with that?
2: Yeah. I mean, again, this study was done as a way of kind of arguing that our standards are too lenient. Okay. <laughs> our standards of, of reading MRIs are like maybe a little bit too highly tuned to sort of assert the existence of a result, or maybe that result is purely the result of right. chance.
0: Did they have a control salmon as well?
2: it was a smoked salmon i think that was the control (laughs) Um, right and and again it doesn't mean i hasten to say that you should just say like well i'm going to dismiss scientific studies i mean i think it's something for scientists to think about and like and and it's already happening it's been happening for years that sort of it's a way we develop scientific practice to reflect the new realities of like very rapid very large-scale science with tons of experiments uh being done under different um, ways of dividing the data and different ways of classifying it. I think, um, you know, because I think a posture again, this is sort of the difference between skepticism and cynicism. If you just take the position that, well, you can't trust things you read about scientific studies, I'm just going to dismiss them. What's inevitably going to happen, I think this is just human nature, is you're going to dismiss things. That you find unpleasant to believe and accept things that right. you find pleasant to believe, and that's pretty bad. That's not math, I promise yeah. you. That's not math.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's all the bubble that we like, live in now. All of us have our bubbles, and it's
2: yeah. I wonder, you know, people talk about the bubble, but then again, like you know, in olden times, there was plenty of people who like never left their town for their whole life, right. so they were in a bubble too, right? I mean, that's, I mean, no, I kind of believe in it. I just don't know that I believe that it's a strictly new thing, and I think it's always oh, okay. been people's responsibility to like you know, try to labor to not um, to not give into it, to labor to kind of take in information from sources other than they might be accustomed to.
0: Yeah. Does probability fall into the realm of what we've been speaking about now, or is that like a separate?
2: No, I think thing. it is, because I think probability is the kind of, um, it's the way math has developed to think about uncertainty. And it's actually like a very new, form of math in the grand scheme of things now you got to understand math is a very old subject so when i say new i mean it's only a few hundred years old i mean that's very new right (laughs) that was just invented basically by our standards compared to geometry which is thousands and thousands of years old or algebra which in some form uh goes back to like india and china at least a thousand years ago i think for most of the history of math uncertainty was not thought of as something that you could reason about mathematically it was just like look if you're not sure you're not sure what are you going to say you're uncertain (laughs) um you know it starts with people analyzing games of chance like gambling being like because there there's sort of some really very quantitative question of like how much should i be willing to spend to play this chance game and sort of how that inevitably forces you to ask like how likely do i think it is that i'm gonna win like not just like i think i might win i think i might lose but to sort of say something more quantitative than that but in some sense like so much of the infrastructure, informational infrastructure that we have now completely depends on that. If you ask, like, for instance, like, how does Google translate uh, translate a sentence from uh, from another language to English or from English to another language, that's essentially some kind of very intricate, computationally intensive exercise in applied probability where they're sort of saying, you know, because remember, it's not like if, if you translate French to English, it's not like there's like a one-to-one map where you're like, this word in French, just matches this word in English. Depends on context, there may be multiple possible matches. Right. And you have to use probability to be like, given all the information I have about what words surrounded in the sentence and what the context seems to be, what do I think is the most likely way to render this word yeah. into English? That's fundamentally so, probabilistic. So that's what Google is all about, basically. That's, is and, that's what, and that's what Google is all about. Like yeah. all these things are, well, or for a matter, that that's, that's how Google does translate. But how does Google make money, right? I mean, they are trying to probabilistically estimate which ad can I show you that I think you're the most likely to click on? And if I can make, if I, the Google engineer can make that 0.1% more likely, that's a lot of money, right? That 0.1% is a lot of money. If I can edge up that probability, uh, just a little bit higher. So was that that
0: Massachusetts uh, lottery that you're talking about where the students went on, what did they buy? A thousand lottery tickets.
2: Oh yeah. This was kind of a crazy story that I found out about where there was, uh, a lottery, which was in some sense, Poorly designed, although we can talk about that in a second, whether it was really poorly designed or not. But it was designed in such a way that, on certain days, it was actually financially advantageous to buy a ticket. The amount, on average, that you would expect to win was actually more than the ticket cost, which is not how lotteries usually work, as you probably know. Mm. Um, and so there was, and so people figured that out, and then there was these huge, um, these groups of people who would buy hundreds of thousands of tickets. At a time, there were kind of like three of these, like large buyers who um, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands at a time. They would stand there at the convenience store, all because you can't just not like you can't just do like an online That's order. Hundred thousand. You want to be the clerk, right? The tickets. Guy. You gotta. You do because actually the clerk gets a cut. Did you know that? No, I didn't. know or that. not, the, not I mean, the the store gets a cut. Store gets a cut. The store gets a cut of any. Clerk gets nothing. So yeah, I think I think by the end and of the game, what happened? Um, Did they win? Yeah, they won a lot of money. <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, the group—the group of people I wrote about, which was a bunch of—well, uh, they started as college students and they graduated and just basically did this. Like this was their like post-college job. Um, <laughs> they made about three and a half million dollars, but it was split between a whole group of people, and it went and it lasted for about seven years that they were playing this lottery game. Um, so it's actually you know if they all. Have, gone out and gotten jobs with their math degrees from MIT, they probably would have made a lot more money, actually. Really? I'd like to see the numbers. Um, (laughs) It's not that much money. I got to see the numbers. You know, in math, because we really do prove things, and it's very locked down, it's not a matter of likelihood, it's a matter of certainty kind of Mm -hmm. way, I think that helps us be more resistant to the idea that statements about public policy, for instance, are proved. People, you throw that language around a lot, like right, in their okay, op eds yeah. or whatever. Like every time somebody's like writing an article in the newspaper, and they say, therefore. I'm like, you haven't earned it, man. You don't have the right to say, therefore. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you're, just, you're just making an argument. There's no proof there. First of all, I want to thank you for your uh, email here where you said there is a, a Mikhail Feldman. Yes. In your department. He goes by Misha. You ever use that? That's a cool nickname. You ever go by Misha? No, I, I, I don't could, know him, hmm.
0: but I like the name. I'm, I'm going to go by Misha from now yeah. on. I like that. So when I saw this email for a second, I was like, why is the partial differential equations guy
2: inviting me over? Yes. Misha's a specialist in partial differential equations. The other Misha Felton. You,
0: you don't hang out with the partial uh, differential equation people? No, I
2: hang out with him at work. I've never been yeah. to his house. You know, so. Yeah, no, I know. I realize <laughs>
0: that, but I mean, it's a different mindset.
2: Are you think we just, all like live in a group house or something? Yeah, I thought that be, kind yeah. of like a, big, like a big... Yeah, the Beatles all live together. Yeah. In the movie. Did they? In the, oh, movie. in the movie. Okay, yeah. in the movie.
0: That's yeah. a different school of thought, these guys. The partial differential equations guys. Are you not
2: part of that? I'm not a partial differential equation, but partial differential equation. Okay, that sounds fancy. Yeah. We can say PDE, by the way, if you want to be cool. You can okay. just say like PDE instead okay. of partial differential I equations. I will for now. Um, I mean, differential equations are basically what govern the entire physical world. This is like the distant descendants of Newton, right? So Newton okay. understood that you sort of um, could understand what was going on with physical objects if you understood... Uh, where they were located, their speed, their acceleration, all this stuff. Yeah. Um, the equations that relate all those things are called differential equations. Oh. So for instance, you know, you may want to know, I have two particles. They move, uh, oh. one's exerting a force on another. Um, They're moving at a certain speed. How can I sell how their speed is going to change? You want to know how all the different objects in the solar system are going to move yeah. going forward for all future time. You want to know how the atmosphere is going to move under some perturbation, like some... Say like addition of a certain amount of heat to the atmosphere, just to yeah. sort of throw an example so out there. Important. All those are differential equations. Yeah, does it interest you? Oh, it does. I just, <laughs> it's just not my expertise. <laughs> it's not your thing. Um, what is math it? is what too is? big. Math is what? too big for somebody to be. You know, they say that yeah. they say that Hilbert was the last mathematician. They say to be expert in yeah. all of mathematics, and he, he lived at the. Very beginning of the twentieth century. That's yeah. a long time ago.
0: Is he the guy who said about the constitution he could find how it, it, it would No, that fascism? was Girdle, different guy. Yeah,
2: I but, wanted to ask you about it. But that. already by girdle's time, like he knew one yeah. area. He didn't know all areas. Yeah. Uh, when
0: he said <laughs> but That's that, an
2: apocryphal story. So we don't know. There's a famous story about Kurt Girdle, who was a logician, that he believed that there was like a fatal logical flaw in the US Constitution. But that enabled fascism basically right but nobody knows if that story is true
0: yes but we've seen it happen now so
2: somebody (laughs) worked it out yeah but i wouldn't say it's like a subtle flaw i mean (laughs) i would say i mean
0: but i mean there are powers there that no one i mean this presidency there are powers there that no one ever knew a president had for example or that that the president could assume that's so i'm thinking someone cracked that code in the constitution
2: i i would say something different i actually would say that the present political situation Um, what it shows you, okay, I'm going to pitch like a great book that I learned a lot from a book called seeing like a state by James Scott. And he made this Mm -hmm. point, which I think we're now seeing played out, which is that you think you can make the system work by writing down like a lot of formal rules. Right. Um, and the constitution is kind of like that, right? People work very hard to be like, okay, here's the ground rules and we'll build this system. That's kind of like robust to attacks. but Scott would say and I think he's right that actually like no human activity is really governed by rigid rules it's it's there can be a set of rules but people kind of have to behave themselves <laughs> and kind of like not act there's there's no system that sort of can't be attacked by somebody who just doesn't care right um so I think that's what we're seeing that um I don't think it's that if the okay. founding fathers had been one jot smarter and sort of like closed up three more loopholes i think any rigid system like the constitution is going to have loopholes in it
0: all right then let me ask you this
2: okay i saved this
0: because i saw uh two mathematicians just solved a decades-old math riddle and possibly the meaning of life uh it talks about that's news to me hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy pair programmers took the galaxy's largest supercomputer uh, after 7.5 million years of oh, this processing. Oh, is, is
2: this Andy Booker's thing? Is that what we're going to talk about? I don't know. I didn't get that far yet. And read okay.
0: Uh, the computer reaches an answer, 42. Only then do the programmers realize that nobody knew the question program was meant to answer. Okay. Um, now this week's most satisfying example of life-reflecting art, mathematicians have used a global network of 500,000 computers to solve a centuries-old math puzzle that happens to involve the most crucial number, 42. <clears throat> my glasses the question which goes back to at least 1955 may have been pondered by Greek thinkers as early as 1954 uh the third century says how can you express every number between one and 100 as the sum of three cubes or put algebraically how do you solve x three x y? cubed
2: plus y cubed, plus Z cubed equals probably n it equals yeah
0: equals k or k equals any whole number from one to a hundred uh, that's known as the Diophantine Equation for a Diophantus of Alexandria. Remember him? I do. Who proposed a similar set of problems about 1,800 years ago. Uh, modern mathematicians revisited the puzzle in the 1950s, found solutions when k equals many of the smaller numbers, but few particularly stubborn integers soon emerged. The two trickiest, which still had outstanding solutions, in, uh, in 2019. and
2: 42, if I remember correctly.
0: 33, and you guessed it, 42. Uh and then there's something about breathing underwater. How do animals do it? No, it goes down here. Um, still, this exhaustive search turned up no solutions for 42. Uh, calculating values at large take an insane amount of computing power. So the next attempt, Booker, yes, Booker, enlisted the help of Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Andrew Sutherland, know him?
2: Yeah, Drew Sutherland, yeah. Yeah. What do you think of him? Good guy. Good
0: guy. Uh, who helped Booker book some time with a worldwide computer network called Charity Engine
2: think that it done on purpose. Booked sometime, booker, booked yeah, sometime. Yeah, I think so. You know, these
0: guys. Trying to work with all this stuff you don't understand
2: and get something <laughs> out of it. You
0: know. According to a statement from the University of Bristol, the network is a worldwide computer. It uh, borrows idle computing time for more than 500,000 500, home PCs. Pretty cool. And so, without further ado, the end and answer the question to the meaning of life, the universe, everything is this following thing here. And I have no idea what that means. So I want to see if you agree with that, I guess looks right to me <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> well look here's the, deal. Just here's the deal i mean the deal is that yeah. you think that the one thing we'd be good at yeah. after all this time is like solving equations yeah. right i mean that's present at the very beginning of mathematics like you have an equation and you want to know whether it has a solution truth is that's still like a very hard problem and what we don't know about it like vastly outweighs but we do know about it. We know a little more than the Greeks knew. But we don't know too much. So that's an example of uh, of a family of equations where, um, you know, let me, let me put it to you this way. If you want to know if I can. So a perfect cube is just a number times itself times itself. Right? So 2 times 2 times 2 is 8. 8 is a perfect cube. 3 times 3 times 3 is 27. 27 is a perfect cube. Yeah. Well, I can start with any number. There's infinitely many perfect cubes. So if I want to know hey, I want to know if three of those cubes can add or subtract up to some fixed number. Well, I could try a bunch of cubes and I could see that they didn't add up to 42, but I haven't tried them all. There's infinitely many. So it's not at all obvious how you're going to answer that question. I mean, there's infinitely many things Or why you
0: would want to ask it.
2: So I think, here's the thing. I think that um, you ask it because it's just some kind of fundamental structural question about how numbers behave. If you don't care about numbers at all, I'm okay with you not asking that particular yeah. question. I don't demand that you spend your computer's spare cycles on solving it. Um, but it does seem to be fundamentally structural to understand what kind of equations have solutions and what kinds do not. So maybe a way to say it is, does it matter that this particular equation has a solution? Right. No, it doesn't matter. But it gives us more information about how good are we are understanding about which equations do have solutions and which don't, like can we tell by inspection which are likely to. So this was, this was an equation that I think people thought it should have a solution, our kind of general heuristic for understanding things. There should be a solution to this, but nobody could find one, and it was a bit, that's what makes it a puzzle. So it's somehow...
0: So it's been found?
2: This, it, this particular one has now been found, yeah, that's yeah. what that article's about.
0: So it should make it easier for what you do in your work, because there's one less thing you have to worry about.
2: I wasn't worried about that particular <laughs> thing, but... <laughs> <laughs> but let me put it this way: If they could have proved that it didn't have a solution, then you'd be like, "Wow, something weird's going on that we don't understand." <sighs> reading entrails, you do that. I think we need to close yeah, on not... reading entrails. No, because
0: <laughs> I, there's a way of proving that actually reading entrails is as good as any other way of
2: prediction. Yeah, so I mean, this is kind of another parable, sort of on the same subject, on the same topic as some of the other ones that we yeah. talked about, where. Um, you know, reading entrails are—I don't actually. Even though I typed this word a million times in my book, I don't know how to pronounce it. Haruspicy—I don't know how to say it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I
0: tried to say it too.
2: Right a haruspex there. is like somebody who specialized in divining the future by yeah. slitting open a sheep and yeah. dropping its intestines out onto the ground and like look yeah. at what kind of patterns they make. right You know what I mean? See if it makes like a picture or something from like yeah. what movie you expect to win the Oscar or something like it's that. kind of better
0: than reading the emperors. I
2: think did they do that yeah I didn't know that was a thing yeah I would have used that as my example if I knew that was a thing. yeah that's nice all right good thing I'm writing a new book I'll, I'll yeah put, put it that in, in there um just footnote
0: me it's all right <laughs>
2: <laughs> and yeah sort of the same story that if you read enough entrails and make another prediction and make and make enough predictions like some of them are going to be right right you can convince yourself well there was that one that I got right that's the time I was reading the entrails correctly. The other times, I obviously, you yeah. know, I left them out in the sun too long or maybe, like, I used the wrong kind of sheep or, like, something yeah. like that. I mean, uh, it's very – I always, you know, I always say, like, the kind of the, – the, the easiest con to fall for is the one you run on yourself. Right. And I think a lot of what I write about in the book is that it's not so much – I mean, it's partially about keeping other people from fooling you. That's part of it. But it's kind of more about how to keep yourself from fooling yourself because that's the person who's – most yeah. likely to be out to trick you yourself,
0: yeah. because I I wonder and, I, and just looking at this entrails thing, don't you think? Well, maybe that's what I'm doing. is just reading entrails as a mathematician. I mean, did I ever no? You get? I gets, don't think that you don't know, have self doubt
2: of any sort. <laughs> oh, I have lo- <laughs> self doubts of lots of sorts. Just not that particular one that you asked about. That would be me. Um,
0: it's all entrails.
2: No, I think the process of studying mathematics is like immensely satisfying yeah. and everything clicks together very nicely and in some sense that's i think what i think engaging in that study it helps you uh be like oh that feels different from the stuff i read in the newspaper and that helps me be yeah. take it more appropriate i mean no, it's, it's funny i was just reading about um abraham lincoln was he um he apparently became quite i don't know if confused is the right word but he would like go you know he was a young lawyer and he would like go to lots of trials and the lawyers would say like, well, I'm going to demonstrate that such and such is the case. And he started wondering like, what does demonstrate mean? Like, what is it? Like, what do we mean when we stand here in the courts and I'm going to prove my case? So um, here's how, you know, like Lincoln had like a better work ethic than you or me. Like then, so he like <laughs> went home and he like read all of Euclid and did all the exercises. Really? And he was very, you know, he was very satisfied with himself and he was like, oh, now I get what it means. <laughs> Prove something, and that's definitely not what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> but but Isn't I think it was very it was a very important exercise. I, mean, I think for his um I think for his whole life, um, some people say okay, we don't know whether this is really know whether this is true or false. But you know, some people say that, um, you know, in the Gettysburg Address, like why does he say dedicated to the proposition wow. that all men are created created equal? And any people think this is him sort yeah. of shouting out to Euclid. That he says it's a proposition, the same word that yeah, Euclid uses to refer to his geometric things. It? But it was certainly a big part of his, his life, this idea that the condition to aspire to when you thought about what was correct and what was incorrect was, was Euclid, was geometry, was true mathematical proofs. And even though sort of human arguments were not going to exactly be that, uh, they could be closer to it or farther from it, and he wanted to be closer to it.
0: Isn't that interesting? How do they do in math in school? Do we have his grade report.
2: Well, he didn't really go to school. I mean, I think he, right. he I don't think, I don't time. think he had that's a formal right. training. I mean, I think after the age of 10, I don't think he really ever went to a, a school school. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, log cabin, pie, right? Those round logs. He probably oh, the, just like stared at the round logs and computed pie.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Of the founding fathers or any of them mathematical uh, thinkers?
2: Oh yeah. Jefferson, total nerd. Jefferson was, yeah. Total nerd. It's, um, actually it was the point Jefferson was like super interested in, like, very fine-grained details about, you know, how representation in Congress should work and what was the mathematically oh, yeah. appropriate way to do it. He was always corresponding with mathematicians in France, and um, and actually, you know, John Adams, like, was, like, just constantly rolling his eyes and being like, <laughs> okay, it's, like, not important to get all the mathematical details right. right. Like, um, and so um That's
0: how we got the Electoral College, probably. The, the ridiculous.
2: Well, the, trying I to think, make
0: up for the difference in sizes of states.
2: Yes. I actually have to... I haven't started learning about it yet. I'm going to learn about that because I want to write about it and understand it. You should. Um, you should get on this. But it's messy. It's messy. It's messy. I would love to tell you that there was sort of some very pristine mathematical calculation that means that the Electoral College is exactly as it should be. But it's not like that. It's definitely messy and dirty. I just have to figure out exactly how yeah. messy and dirty.
0: Next book. Next book is
2: almost coming. That'll be in the next week. Yeah. Well, I got to write it first.
0: <laughs> oh, I thought you, you were close to.
2: It'll be out in about, it should be out in the summer of 2021.
0: Okay. We don't want to talk about it because it's, it's to talk to authors about books and writing because they hate you for their entire
2: mm-hmm. lives afterwards.
0: This one, though, did, did you ever meet Bill
2: Gates?: I never met Bill Gates. He says it's um, one of his favorite books. He recommended nobody, nobody knows how Bill Gates recommends his books. It's a very, it's a very tightly <laughs> guarded <laughs> secret. You're not allowed to submit your book to Bill Gates. It's just you know the, the white smoke comes out of the chimney and then you learn like what, yeah. uh, what books bet. Bill Gates.
0: Isn't that interesting, though?
2: As recommended. Um, no, it's very gratifying. You know, he wrote, you know, he writes a nice uh, little blog post about, like, the books that he recommends. And it's very clear that he actually read it. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like, you know, he read it and really uh, engaged with the idea. So it's quite. I think he's
0: quite a mathematical nice thinker. That. Yeah, I mean, Is coding math, mathematical?
2: I'd say it's math adjacent. Math adjacent. It has a lot in common with math without actually being math. Does that make sense? Yeah.
0: Because you're not trying to solve problems you're trying to make things
2: oh happen. no on the contrary you are trying to solve trying to problems.
0: solve problems of, of, a, of a certain
2: sort and you know there's people who think okay ready for some i'll throw down some high test controversy in the math world throw some down. people think, throw down. some people think i've heard a very famous mathematician say maybe we should throw out plain geometry so going back to euclid right like lincoln loves so much people say maybe we shouldn't do that in school and instead uh, should do intro to programming. Okay, what's the argument for this? I'm not ready to go there yet, but I'll tell you what the argument is. The argument is that, um, you here know, writing so I thought proof- I had to answer that and I didn't
0: know what to say.
2: Okay, I'm yeah, here for yeah, you. Tell me, writing, writing a geometric proof is the way you do it is you put together these steps. Both of you guys took geometry, right? I'm sure, like sure. long ago. So, um, plane geometry. Yeah, so you, so you take these very small steps, each one of which you're like, okay, this step is very simple. It's absolutely ironclad, definitely correct. And you actually can do something pretty complicated by putting together these very small steps. Like it, but you have to put them together in the right order, right? You have to see, like, having done this, then the next thing to do is that. And having done this, the next thing to do is that. Writing a computer program is a lot like that, right? Like each line of code does something very simple. But if you put a whole bunch of them together in the right order, then you can actually bunch, like achieve yeah. something complicated. Yeah. But it requires a certain kind of extremely methodical and systematic thinking to say, like, how can I produce a rather complicated device out of these very simple components um, where all the magic is, okay, how do I arrange them in sequence? Like, how do I sort of control the flow of thought or action from the beginning of this process to the end? And so in that respect, writing a program is a lot like writing a mathematical proof. Yeah, Math adjacent, I
0: would say. Math adjacent. I agree with that. How oh, not to be wrong: the power of mathematical thinking. Uh, everyone should read this book, I think, because I think it can help you know whatever you're doing or whatever you think about things. It it it, it makes you look at the way what, what you believe. A lot of things that you
2: believe. Yeah, and it's and it That's is like, kind of helpful. To be honest with you, I did not think so many people were going to read it. A lot of people read it. A lot of people liked. it. I mean, it's, it's the the publishers thought a lot of people would read it, but I I think let me put it this way: when you teach math in college or in high school or wherever, most of the people in front of you have not chosen to be there. That's just a fact, right? <laughs> most of the people are there uh, because they have to be there. And you know what I've learned from writing this book and from going around and giving talks about it, talking to people about it is people really want to learn math. Like people like it. They don't, they don't just learn it because they have to be there. I mean, like people really want to know. Mm-hmm. and Not to be
0: wrong jordan ellenberg thank you really thank you so much for coming oh thank on. you for having me on this was
2: fun it was great we heard Probably one is it. the loneliest number
0: yeah and we're gonna hear it again
2: nice yeah one is the
1: loneliest number that you'll ever and then uh while said uh, why don't you get ricky
0: uh, got your number Oh, don't lose this number. Oh, that's a good one. That's one a good one. I wish I would've
1: thought of I really actually like that. One, one, <laughs> you have the whole internet, and internet your so You can't queue up that song. That's <laughs> not <laughs> how it works. I don't have so that. I'm not a song lot. Of professional radio No, of is the saddest experience well, nice, you'll nice. ever know. Nice. 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 Yes, it's the saddest experience you'll ever know. Whoa. Because one is the loneliest number that you'll ever do